0: Welcome to the Most Notorious Podcast. My name is Eric Rivenus, and I'm glad you're here with me. Al Capone, the legendary Chicago gangster, is our topic today, and my guest, a person who not only knew him, but continues to carry the family name, a very special guest this week. Today I'm talking to Deirdre Marie Capone, author of Uncle Al Capone, part personal memoir, and part history book. It's an intimate, engaging, and moving look at not only her relationship with the world's most infamous gangster, but her own journey to find acceptance with the Capone family name. I am absolutely thrilled and honored to be talking to you today. Uh, Ms. Capone, thank you so much for agreeing to speak with me.
1: You're very welcome, Eric. I'm happy to be here.
0: So your, your book opens around the family dinner table where you're forced to make an admission to your children. Can you talk about that moment and what it meant for you?
1: Yes, it was very uh, traumatic. Uh, I think to a large extent I suffered some post-traumatic inner results from growing up in the city of Chicago with the last name Capone. Um, you know, my father tried to protect me, you know, but it, it didn't work. It uh, it would raise its its ugly head and I'd have some ramifications of it. So in 1972, my husband had an opportunity to relocate up to Minnesota and start a new business. And so we did. You know, we just became settlers or... Or explorers, you know, we left our family, our homes behind us, and went up there. And no one up there knew who I was. So my wings literally spread. I could do things. I can, you know, work. You know, do amazing things, and nobody would say, "Well, you can't do this." You know, you're you're a Capone. So I I really you know became very confident, and my life started all over again. Well, one day our twelve-year-old son you know, came home from school, and he, I said to him, "What did you learn in school today?" And he said, "Oh, we're studying about this gangster called Al Capone." Well, it was like somebody took a sledgehammer and hit me in the stomach with it because, you know, I didn't think anybody outside of the city of Chicago would be interested in Al Capone because. It, You know, I grew up and it was so self-contained and self-centered. I mean, I'd read the headlines in the papers and read those things in the Chicago papers, but I guess I didn't realize that they would be studying my family in history in school. So I waited and went to my husband and I said, Honey, we're going to have to tell the children. I never told the children their heritage because of how horrible it was for me to grow up. And then you see, you know, some horrible reference to Al Capone or my grandfather was Ralph Capone in a paper or something, and it, it just put more stain on my soul. So I didn't want that to happen to them. So I never told them. Well, I, I didn't want them to find out from somebody else. So I gathered up all my courage and, you know, after dinner we called the kids into the kitchen and they knew something was wrong. You know, I'm holding on to my husband's head and I said, kids, I've got something to tell you. And I said, I was born Deirdre Marie Capone. Al Capone was my uncle. And they looked at each other, they looked at me, they, you know, looked back at each other and then they turned and the four of them in unison went, cool, Mom. Well, I wasn't expecting that kind of response. I thought that they were going to hate me because there were times I hated being a Capone. And I hated God for making me a Capone. So they started peppering me with questions and I got out the family album and I showed them And then, you know, that summer we went back to Chicago. I reacquainted all of them, you know, with my family. Then we went up to Wisconsin um, where my grandfather lived, you know, acquainted him, acquainted all the people up in Wisconsin with them. And so that started my new life uh, um, as being a Capone. But it was very, very, very difficult to grow up with that life.
0: So in the book you call Al Capone your uncle, but he's not your immediate uncle, right?
1: My book is called Uncle Al Capone, but he is my granduncle. uncle. Al Capone's parents are my grandparents. So my grandfather was Al's brother. So all of that immediate family were my grand uncles or grand aunts. I never knew his father my great-grandfather because he died in 1920 in Brooklyn Um, but I did know his mother and all everybody in the family very well I mean we had Sunday dinners together all the time you know we traveled together we you know ate every holiday dinners together I went to church all the time with Alice's mother and prayed the rosary with her So, you know, I was there observing the pains on their faces when they would read some of these, you know, accounts in the newspapers. And so I I experienced things from the inside. I was never outside the family. I was inside a very core part of the family. Um, The Capone grave site is in the Chicago area. I am the person in charge of that. When my Aunt Matthew died, it, the responsibility for that gravesite went to me. And there is a grave waiting there. That will be my resting place when, you know, the Lord takes me home.
0: Can you talk a little about the early history of the Capone family and their eventual start in Chicago?
1: Yes. Um, my... My grandfather was born in Italy, in Angri, Italy, as was his older brother, Vincenzo. And then their parents decided to come to America. And they came to America for a couple of reasons. Number one, it was the promise of the new land. And Italy was run either by the church or gangs, and they wanted to get away from that. And so they came here for the promise and they settled in Brooklyn and Al Capone was the first child that was conceived and born in America. And so all of the reasons for them to leave their families and their homes behind them and come to this new world, you know, was in Al Capone's body. And so it and then the children that came afterwards also. And it was a pretty tough life for them in New York when they immigrated there. Of course, the Irish immigrated before, so now the Italians are the low people on the totem pole, and they were the last to be hired and the first to be fired. So it was difficult. The teachers in school didn't like the Italians. They said they they smelled and... They were lazy and, you know, I mean, just the same thing that all new immigrants get when they come to a country like this. There's discrimination. But, you know, they were tough boys. You know, they fought in gangs. The the Irish gang against the Italian gang was real back then. And they just grew up scrapping boys and with the strange sense of humor. And, of course, they joined, you know, the gangs, and one was the Four Points Gang, and Al Capone met a man by the name of Johnny Torrio in in the Four Points Gang. And so Johnny Torrio had a chance to go to Chicago to work in, you know, some brothels and some taverns and stuff that were legal, of course, when he went to Chicago. And so, you know, he was a very, very smart man. They called him the Fox because he was just a very cunning, smart man. And then Prohibition came in and Johnny Torrio saw an opportunity to make a lot of money because when Prohibition was passed, the people in America didn't want it. It took a constitutional amendment and then 13 years later, it took another constitutional amendment to end it. So the, the 20s was the, was the change, a big change in our society. Jazz was coming into being. You know, women had just gotten the right to vote. You know, women were bobbing their hairs and shortening their skirts. Women, you know, could go to a tavern and sit down and have a drink. So everything was going on. But when prohibition was enacted, the, the people in the big cities needed someone to bring in the supply of alcohol. The people out in the rural areas could make their own bathtub gin or, you know, make their own beer. It wasn't any problem for them. But the people in the cities needed something. So this whole new business started. And Johnny Torrio had uh, probably about... 15 or 16 roadhouses, and of course, you know, they were, well, let's say, prostitution houses, so they immediately put the beer in there, and that's what started that whole business, and he needed someone to act as a bodyguard and, you know, a, a bouncer, and he remembered Al Capone, and Al Capone was a smart guy, and Al Capone just got married and had a baby, and he was looking for a new beginning. And then Johnny Torrio called him into Chicago in 1920. And then when their father died in Brooklyn in November of 1920, that left my grandfather being in charge of all of his younger siblings. Al was married and gone, but, and my grandfather was married and had a son, But all these younger siblings and his mother needed somebody to take care of them because the breadwinner in the family was gone. So Al went and, you know, tested the waters in Chicago, saw an opportunity, told my grandfather to come there, and so that started the immigration of the Capones into Chicago. And prohibition was in every city of You know, the United States, every big city, and every big city had bootleggers. But Al Capone, the Capone outfit, is the most infamous because it was the best run. At one point, my grandfather told me he was running over 300 different establishments. And just think about that. He didn't have a fax machine, he didn't have a cell phone, and he didn't have a computer All the bills were paid, all the employees were paid, and everything worked out well. And it was a very, very well-run organization.
0: There's some great stories in your book, and one of my favorites has to do with Al's older brother, Vincenzo, known as Jim. Could you tell that story?
1: Well... My grandfather, Gabriel Capone, Al's father and my grandfather's father, was quite a taskmaster. He was a barber, and at that point in our history, barbers were doctors. Barbers could stitch you up if you cut your face. Um, they did other things rather than just cut hair. So he was a very educated man. He was very educated in Italy as was their mother she lived in a nunnery for a while and then made the decision that that wasn't for her she wanted to get married and have children but they were both educated people so they wanted their sons to be educated Um, and so he was really a taskmaster and as I said before there were gangs and there was an Irish gang there was an Italian gang And the book, The Streets of New York, is true. Those things happened. Well, there was a gang, you know, there's going to be a fight going on. And Al was a a little boy at the time. He was probably five years old. You know, my grandfather would be like 11 years old. So they went to be in this fight to watch the fight. And, of course, Al sat on the sidelines because he was too small. And so he was watching all this stuff going on, and he saw his brother, Vincenzo, push an Irish guy through a plate glass window. And, of course, it shattered, and there's blood all over. And so Al ran up to his brother and said, You killed him. You killed him. The is going to punish you, you know, and that's a sin to kill somebody. So Vincenzo didn't want to go home and face the wrath of his father or the disappointment of his mother. The circus had just closed and was in town. So he went down to the trains and he hopped the circus train and he rode it out of town. No one knew what happened to Vincenzo. So it was not until 1945 that they found out who Vincenzo was. But Vincenzo went out west. He went settled finally in Homer, Nebraska, and he became a sheriff, and he was a bounty hunter. He was the kind of guy that would knock down the stills. So I can just imagine him on one side watching and reading the goings-on of his brothers in Chicago, and he is on the other side of the law. He had four sons, and those four sons didn't know his heritage. He was dark-skinned because he was Italian. So he told everybody in Homer, Nebraska that he was of Indian heritage. And so his wife and his children believed him. But it wasn't until 1945 that they all knew that he was indeed Al Capone's brother.
0: And there's a, a poignant moment in your book when he comes home and his mother doesn't recognize him.
1: Yeah, during the heyday, you know, during all of this time's The story got out about a a missing brother. And, of course, with Al Capone's notoriety and his wealth, there were many people that would come and say, oh, I'm the missing brother, don't you remember me, blah, 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 blah. And, of course, my grandmother had a secret. Vincenzo was the oldest boy. And when they came to America... He was very sickly. The other boys were very hearty and strong. But Vincenzo was very, very sickly. So my grandmother, who, I mean, she taught me to cook, and she would tell me things, and she would impress on me, Deirdre, food is medicine. And she would give me certain things to eat at times that I wasn't feeling well and give me things to drink. And in a lot of ways, she was very kosher in her cooking. We could never eat meat and milk at the same table. I never drank a glass of milk eating any of the Italian food. We were always drinking root beer. So um, root beer for the kids and, and water for the adults, but she would never do that. So she always impressed on me that food is medicine, and if it's cooked with love, it will nourish the body. She also would insist that when we were all sitting as a family together eating, there could never be any arguing. It, you know, because when you argue or something unpleasant happens, your stomach creates acid and your food turns to poison. So I, you know, I, I do that. I raise, raise my children with those same values. So in order to get him well, she would take him on a regular basis to the stockyards, and he would drink fresh cow's blood to build up his system. And she would tell him, never, ever tell anybody, don't tell your father, don't tell your brothers and sisters, because they will call you a vampire. So nobody ever, you know, shared that information. So when he finally told the story, and my grandfather said, well, come To the house and you know we'll be there and I happened to be there with them and my grandmother was sitting out in the dining room in a chair and I was standing right beside her and this man came to the door now remember the last time my grandmother saw her son he was 16 years old so now this you know 45 year old man comes through the door and she looks up at him and she spits at him and says in Italian, you are not my son. You know, because she couldn't recognize him. So he bent down and he whispered in her ear and she fainted dead away. So he told her their secret and she fainted dead away. And I I was standing right there observing that whole thing. So then we all knew that indeed this was Vincenzo, the the missing, you know, Capone boy.
0: We will be right back. The
1: storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906 when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges.
0: After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, The desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by
1: freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Reva Steed's Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Steed's The Audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. Kat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join
0: Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The
1: Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media.
0: When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Oh, well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at ConstantPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And we have returned. He was a really famous lawman. He, he went by the nickname Two-Gun Heart. Dressed in Western clothes, and was even assigned to protect President Calvin Coolidge and his family.
1: He was the bodyguard for them when they toured the Black Hills.
0: Your uncle Al had dreams of buying the Chicago Cubs. Would he have made a a good baseball club owner? Do you think?
1: Oh yeah, because he was generous. He wasn't afraid to spend money, and he did have this plan. He he worked it out that he was. He was going to be able to get Wrigley, but Wrigley, you know, found out about it and didn't go along with it. But he was going to make um, Babe Ruth the the manager-player, and it would have been they would have been winners long before today.
0: <laughs> and he talked about breaking the color barrier, didn't he? Bringing in talent from the Negro leagues far, far before Jackie Robinson.
1: Correct. He he definitely was doing that. See, they had a, an affinity for the blacks because they were the blacks of their generation. And so my grandfather had um, a nightclub in Cicero called the Cotton Club, and he patterned it after the Cotton Club in Harlem. Um, so Oni Madden was a friend of my grandfather's, and Oni Madden uh, ran the Cotton Club in Harlem. The difference between the two clubs is the one in Harlem, of course, was located in in the black neighborhood, so blacks could come and go, entertainers, into that club. In Cicero, my grandfather had to go out to the black neighborhoods with guards and bring the entertainers in so that they were safe, otherwise they could not pass through the white neighborhoods back in the 20s.
0: So family conversations and personal research have offered you some insights on Al Capone's legacy. He's quoted famously as saying, it seems like I'm responsible for every crime that takes place in the country. The most infamous crime that he's known for, and it certainly is one of the most infamous crimes in American history, is the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Could you tell us the traditional version of the story and then explain what you've learned that made you question his guilt?
1: Well, the traditional story is that seven men were lined up in the garage of Bugs Moran's warehouse and shot in the back with Tommy guns and shotguns. And the press said that Al Capone did it. Well, I grew up knowing a different side of it. The so-called mechanic that died in the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, was a a man by the name of Johnny May. Johnny May had a brother, Tommy May, and and they had a sister, Margaret May. Margaret May was my husband's aunt through marriage. Um, Johnny May would be coming home from the warehouse telling his family, police are stealing liquor off the back of Bugs Moran's trucks, and Bugs is getting really mad about that. And so Bugs was going to try to stop it, and it wouldn't stop, so Bugs was going to tell the, the police captain about it. And so when the crime happened, my Aunt Marge and and my Uncle Tommy knew it was the police that did it. The second thing about it is the day before the crime, My Uncle Matty, who was the youngest Capone boy, was sitting in the car on Clark Street with machine gun Jack McGurn, and they were given instructions by Al Capone to watch when Bugs went into the the, uh, warehouse and when he came back out again with the instructions that Jack McGurn and my Uncle Matty would go in and talk to Bugs and try to talk sense to him. To put it in my family's way, the way that Al would say it, Bugs' head has gotten too big for his hat. There's enough business for all of us. You don't have to go and steal somebody else's business. So they were there, you know, just watching to see when Bugs would go in. And, and my my Uncle Maddie told me, Deirdre, this car, this touring car filled with policemen, would go up Clark Street and then it would turn around and go back and then it would come up again and he said we're sitting there and we got scared that they would take us in for loitering so we left and of course the crime happened the next day. There are many historians of that era, I've coined a a phrase for them, I call them gangsterologists and." So many of these gangsterologists will come up with their own version of the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. This is what happened and this is how it happened and, you know, Al Capone sent out the word and this happened and everything else. Well, that crime, I think, was responsible for putting a very indelible black mark on the Capone name. Something very interesting happened on April 13th, Thursday, April 13th, 2016, in the city of Chicago. The American Bar Association was holding their annual convention, the Division of Litigators. And to start the convention off, they decided to put on a mock trial in the Goodman Theater in Chicago. It went from 1230 to 430. It had real judge, real lawyers, and the room was filled with over 800 attorneys. The name of the mock trial was the trial of Al Capone for murder at the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. And the man that played Al Capone is a man by the name of Robert Clifford. And I sat in the audience, and I watched this. And they were saying that Al Capone did it, and then the defense saying, "No, Al Capone didn't." Finally, the the judge gave the instructions to the jury. The jury acquitted him, and it was it was amazing. And then the they told the audience. The audience said not guilty, overwhelmingly. But the, the jury couldn't reach a verdict, so he was acquitted. And believe me, they gave all this evidence with all of this, this proof and everything. And if these very brilliant people could not convict him of something, I think that's pretty in, in, intelligible. And the man who did play Al Capone told me himself... I know for a fact Al Capone was not guilty.
0: You must feel some personal validation over the verdict.
1: Yes, because I was scared. I mean, it wouldn't really mean anything um, because he, he he's dead and he was never indicted for this crime. But I will tell you, back in 1991, the American Bar Association Division of, of Defenders had an annual convention in Chicago to start the, the convention off. They put on a trial, but this was a retrial, and it was a retrial of Al Capone for income tax evasion. Now, they presented all the same evidence. They got out all the transcripts, which were hidden, and the, the head man said, Deirdre, I looked all over for the transcripts, and he said, I found them in the basement of the Treasury. Not I mean it wasn't in the courthouse. It so they were hidden away. Anyway, they went through the same thing, real judge, real jury. The jury overwhelmingly said not guilty on all counts. So those are two things. They did get Al Capone on income tax evasion. They got my grandfather on income tax evasion for the same amount of money for the same years my grandfather was sentenced to three years in a federal penitentiary. Al Capone was sentenced to 11 years.
0: And you're right that your Uncle Al had some pretty terrible lawyers.
1: Uh, absolutely. They gave back all the money afterwards because it was just, it was, it was, it was rigged. The whole thing was rigged. And for them to take my uncle, and the first time I, I went to Alcatraz, I cried. Because here was this man that was king of the city of Chicago and he was in a five-foot-by-nine-foot cell for years in Alcatraz. And Alcatraz was opened to to put people out there that did horrible crimes. If you go out there and you go to the visitor center, you'll see all the crimes that the, the men who served time there did. There were two men who served time on Alcatraz for income tax evasion. One was my Uncle Al. The other was his bodyguard who insisted that the courts put him out there after they transferred Al out there so he could take care of him.
0: It's interesting that... Regarding the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, Al Capone was never tried in a court of law for that crime, but he was definitely tried in the newspapers and the court of public opinion. Before the massacre, he was looked at pretty positively by the people of Chicago as a, as a benefactor. But after the massacre, he was regarded more as a, as a dangerous criminal.
1: Well, when I first came out with the book, there were still a few old timers in the city of Chicago and they managed through their caretakers or through other people to get in touch with me. Anybody that was in the city of Chicago when the St. Valentine's Day massacre happened knew Al Capone did not do it because that wasn't his MO. It just, I mean, there's a very brilliant historian by the name of Jonathan Eig. Who writes books on famous people? Right now, he's writing a book on Muhammad Ali. So he he did extensive research. His book called Get Capone also says Al Capone did not do the va- the Valentine's Day massacre, and he proved it. But see, the people won't pay attention to me. They they put down his book. These gangsterologists wouldn't support Jonathan's book, and they've never supported my book. As a matter of fact, they criticize me. And, you know, I'm much more vulnerable than Jonathan is because I'm a girl. And I'm, I'm doing the work that men do. Family history always follows the sperm. It never follows the egg. But there is no male person in the Capone family that can do this. And I'm 76 years old right now. I've got to get this out there. We have a movie. A brilliant screenplay writer wrote it. Um, we've got some genuine interest in it. I just found out last week that this group of investors in Russia want to, in, to do the movie. They're, they're going to pay all the bills.
0: Congratulations.
1: Thank you. Um, We're getting together the first week of May in this year, 2016, and then we'll sign all the papers and, and get things going, and we will start shooting it this fall, and it will be in the theaters in 2017. And in that movie, I'm going to tell more things. When I started to write the book, I would go down this path, and it was to tell stories like I'm telling now, And I got concerned. It was like, well, they're going to tell me to prove it, you know, and I don't have enough proof for them. So I go back, and finally what I did is I made my book my story. So that's why it is a biography in, in some respects, but it's also, you know, a memoir. And now I've got a chance to tell the real story.
0: Let's talk a little bit about your Uncle Al Capone in Alcatraz prison. What were his experiences there?
1: Well, first of all, you know, he should have never, you know, gone there. Um, it was all a publicity plot. Um, there was a, a man by the name of J. Edgar Hoover who was the head of Secret Service. And uh, the U.S. was going to start this new. A program called the FBI. And he wanted to be the first head of the FBI. And Congress wasn't considering him because he never made any arrests. He never did anything as the head of, you know, the Secret Service. So he wanted to get that job. He wanted to be the first director of the FBI. So what he did is he called the first warden of Alcatraz and said, if you want the world to know what a horrible place Alcatraz is, transfer Al Capone out there. And that is exactly what he did. The minute that happened, the people assumed that J. Edgar Hoover knew he did all these horrible crimes, but couldn't prove them in a court of law. Otherwise, they wouldn't have transferred Al Capone to Alcatraz, because he should not have been there. So, you have to get on a ferry boat to go from the mainland to Alcatraz and the very last sign you see when you get on the ferry is a quote by the first warden, Johnston, and it says, Alcatraz was opened to incarcerate irredeemable men, men who could never return back to society. That's not Al Capone. That's people like Jack Stroud, the Birdman of Alcatraz, who was just a loony bin, Um, it was not Al Capone. And for him to get out there, and you know, when he was transferred out there, Prohibition had ended. And he had a cell that faced the city, faced downtown. And on nice nights, the window would be open. He could hear the glasses clinking. He could hear people singing. He knew they were celebrating and drinking the booze that he was responsible during Prohibition to bring them. It had to be soul-searching. I mean, it just had, I can't imagine how anguished that he had to be and how strong he had to be to survive that.
0: You also write in your book that they gave him some treatments in prison.
1: Well, my grandfather, of course, was the head of of the family. And so he had to be consulted and approve everything. Out on Alcatraz, they did not have the writ of habeas corpus, which is the last thing a prisoner can do to go back to court to prove that he was incarcerated erroneously, that he had proof that he shouldn't be there. Because that was a prison during the Civil War, and Abraham Lincoln removed that right from there so that the war prisoners wouldn't go back to court and then run away and disappear. But what they did is they replaced it with time off with good behavior. Al Capone on Alcatraz was a model prisoner. So he was getting out in six years rather than eleven years. So he was getting out and the the people in Chicago were afraid that he would come back and start all you know, up all over again. So the warden of Alcatraz called my grandfather and said, you know, hey, Ralph, your brother's getting out, and there's now a new treatment for syphilis, and they want us to try it out on any prisoner here that has it. And so I want to try it out on Al, and so he could be of, you know, sound mind when he gets out of prison. And my grandfather, he told me the story... And when he told me, tears were streaming down his cheeks. And he said, I gave them permission. So what they did is they took my uncle off of Alcatraz and they put him into the hospital on Terminal Island, which is off of Los Angeles. There they started treating him for syphilis. After the first treatment, that is when you will see in the history books and in the files, El. Alba- Capone became violent. He, he, he wouldn't, you know, cooperate. So they had to put him in solitary. They, they had to put him in the hole. They, you know, he, he couldn't go out in the yard anymore. He was violent. He would fight them. He didn't want to go back in and get these injections. He became terrified of needles. And, and the priest there called up Al's wife, my Aunt May, and said, you've got to do something. They're killing Al. Something is happening to him. When he did get released, my grandfather had a big party for him at his home in Cicero, Illinois. This was in November of 1939. My mother was pregnant with me. I was going to be born two months later. And so she was there with my father, and she told me, he would come up to me and say, who are you? And then he would go to his own sister saying, Who are you? And then he would go back to, you know, his mother and say, who are you? So my grandfather knew something was wrong with Al. So he got hold of some, a psychiatrist friend of his and they recommended that they take my uncle to Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. And that's where he was the day that I was born. To make a long story short, the treatment that they were giving my uncle in Alcatraz was injections of mercury. And if anybody read Alice in Wonderland, you know that there was a character in the Alice in Wonderland called the Mad Hatter. The Mad Hatter would make headdresses for the royalty, and to make his work easier, he would dip his thread in mercury so it would slide through these heavy fabrics easily. Well, the thread then would cut his fingers, and the mercury would get into his bloodstream and cause him to act stark raving mad. That is what they were doing to my uncle. And that is why he became this crazy person that he became, and it dwindled his mentality.
0: Back after a few brief messages. And we have returned for the final time. There's a great picture in your in your book of you, very little, with your Uncle Al. Can you talk about some of the memories you have of him? Are there any specific moments that you shared that you wouldn't mind telling us about?
1: Oh, I have lots of them. Remember that Al Capone died on my seventh birthday. But we were a very close-knit Italian family. Immigrant families are like that. So we would get together, as I say, every Sunday, every holiday, you know, every birthday. And when we would sit down, we would talk about the past. Do you remember when Al did this? Do you remember when this happened? Don't you remember that? So it kept these memories very, very sharp in my mind. And after my dad's death, just before my 11th birthday, I started to quiz all of my family members, and I kept a diary. So that also kept these memories alive for me. But there was a couple of ones that were traumatic to me, so that's why I can still picture them, I can still hear them, I can still feel them, even smell what was going on around. One time I was in the backyard at the um, Prairie Avenue home in Chicago, and Al was out in the backyard sunning himself, as was my grandmother. And I was out there and I wanted to climb this apple tree. And Al said, well, be careful. And so my grandmother said, yes, be careful. So I started to climb this tree and I got up and my foot slipped and I fell backwards on the ground. And when I fell backwards, of course, the wind got knocked out of me. And that was the very first time that had ever, ever happened to me. And it's It's scary, you know, because all of a sudden, you can't breathe. And so Al came over and picked me up, and I could still feel him. And he put me over his shoulder, and I could feel his shoulder and his arms around me, and he started rubbing my back until I started to breathe again. And my father, I still remember my father calling out saying, is she okay, because he heard me scream. And And Al said, don't worry, you know. She had the wind knocked out of her. She's okay. So then he took me inside the house up to his floor, which was the upper floor, and we went into his living room, and he sat me down, and he took out this instrument, and it was a mandolin. And he taught me to play the mandolin, and he taught me to sing a lullaby that I sang to each of my four children every night before they went to sleep. So that's a pretty profound memory that and one that, you know, is indelible. I just will never never erase that no matter how old I get.
0: what was the lullaby?
1: It, it it's in Italian. It's it's um Shababa Shawa Shimama in Kalana, Kukala Goomba. So I don't know exactly what the, the proper name is for it. I should look it up and and find out.
0: You personally had a a really tough time growing up. You had a distant relationship with your mother, uh, but you and your father were really close. Can you talk about your own childhood and the really touching relationship that you had with your dad?
1: Well, my mom sought out my dad and married him. And if you can just imagine the type of woman that would choose to marry into a mob... That was my mother. My mother was a party girl. Um, give her a drink and give her a party and and give her some cigarettes and and she'd go all night long. So she never wanted to be a wife or a mother. She just wanted that glamorous existence. Uh, when she was a little girl, her mother and father were very high. Society people. My my grandfather literally, her father literally owned most of the South Side of Chicago. So my mother grew up with maids and butlers and and having all of her clothes handmade and horses and things like that. And and, and her mother never even drove a car. You know, she had people drive her around. Well, then the stock market crashed, and of course, my grandfather was one of these businessmen who wanted to be part of the high, the highest society in the city of Chicago, the you know the Conrad, Hilton kind of people, and so he would buy stocks on margin, and when you know of course now you've got a lot of wealth because you've got a lot of stocks, but when the, the stock market crashed, he had to come up with this money, so he had to sell, all his properties, you know, to pay off his debt of owning all this stock, and you know one of the One of these things was this big house on the south side of Chicago. And when that happened, they had to take my mother out of a private school and put her into a public school. And my mother was humiliated about that. So she refused to go to school at, at 15. She never went to school beyond 15. And then a friend of hers was dating this guy, and he was a friend of Ralph Capone. So they went on a double date. And of course, then my mother saw a chance to have the life that she wanted back again. And so she followed my father to Notre Dame, and they eloped and kept it secret for a couple of years because once my mother's family found out that she had married a Capone, they disowned her. And they would have nothing to do with me ever because I was a Capone. And and my name brought a black mark to their family name. So it was quite, quite an ordeal. My father was a brilliant man, um, went all, you know, to Notre Dame, went to Loyola Law School, passed the bar, but the Chicago Bar Association would not allow him to practice because his, his last name was Capone. And so after that, my mother, was disappointed in him. And so she started to look around for another life. By the time my mother died, she had been married eight different times. So she was just the kind of a woman that that was always looking for the grass that was greener on the other side of the fence and unfortunately never found it. But in the process, you know, she didn't really do her mother, you know, kind of things. My Al's younger sister, his only sister, my Aunt Matthew, kind of filled that spot for me. And she became kind of a surrogate mother for me. And so I learned a lot of things from her.
0: I love your book for a number of reasons. Not only do you offer a glimpse into the inside life of the Capone family, but you really bare your soul and talk about some terribly difficult, emotional moments in a really brave way. One of the most gut-wrenching of those moments for you happened on the last day you saw your father. If it's not too difficult, would you mind telling that story?
1: Yeah, that is, is very, very traumatic um, for me. Um, I can't even tell you how much I adored my dad. And I look just like him. I don't look like my mother at all. I look just like my dad. If you saw my dad's baby picture and my baby picture and put them side by side, you'd, you'd be hard-pressed, you know, to instantly tell the difference. I hadn't seen my dad in a while. And so my Aunt Matthew um, called my mother and asked her to bring me over to the house. And so... I went and I went in the front door and I ran down the hall and everybody was around the dining room table. And of course, the first person I saw sitting there was my dad. I wanted to run over to him because I hadn't seen him in a while. And I wanted to run over to him and just put my arms around him. But I was scared. See, my mother and her whole family... Absolutely refused to ever have me talk when I came back from the Capone house about anything that went on there. And also, I knew if I acted like this very much, my mom would get rid of me. My mother tried to give me to various people to live on numerous occasions. You know, there was aunts that had no children and my mother would send me off to live with them for a while and I, I, I didn't want that. I wanted my father. I wanted to be with my family, my Capone family especially. So I was scared. I was just a, you know, a 10 year old girl, scared, didn't want to be overzealous. So I started greeting every one of my uncles around the table. Finally, my Aunt Nathie and my Grandma Capone saw this and they pulled me into the kitchen. You know, back then, the women never sat at the table. They were always in the kitchen cooking. And so they pulled me into the kitchen, and my aunt Matthew scolded me, and she said, don't you know who's sitting there? I said, yes, that's my dad. She said, but why haven't you talked to him? And I said, well, I was saving him for last, you know, just finding an excuse within <laughs> the skin of my teeth. And I can tell you everything that we talked about, everything he told me is is just etched in my brain. It was three days later, um, I got up early in the morning to get ready for school, and the telephone rang. And I ran to my mother, and I said, don't answer that phone. And she said, why? And I said, because they're going to tell you my dad's dead. And that's exactly what it was. He was found dead in bed. Um, My family believes that he was poisoned, that he was given a mickey because he was writing a book called The Sins of the Father. And it was being written mainly for me, because he wanted me to know the truth about what was going on. And I did have a chance to read what he wrote, and I don't know whatever happened to that transcript. I don't know if my grandfather threw it out, but my Aunt Matthew did let me read it. And so they think that he he was murdered, because... He was found in his room, his door was locked, and he was writing a note to the girlfriend that he had then. But my family didn't want to open up that because it it would be too dangerous for all of us. So we just decided to say that he committed suicide, but he was was poisoned.
0: It was so tough for you uh, growing up to deal with your family name. But now you've you've really embraced it,
1: well, I have to, um, because, as I say, there's nobody else that can, and once I'm gone from this earth, the things that I have will be gone. So what I'm hoping is that I start a little curiosity in people, and I think that's why they put on this this mock trial for the Valentine's Day massacre. I think that curiosity is starting. You know, there's always been, um, corruption in business and politics. And there's always been fall people. And there is, there was a group, I mean, people can research this. There was a group of business people in the city of Chicago. They called themselves the Secret Six. And they took great exception to a man of immigrant roots, especially Italian rising to that position of power. And he was the most powerful person in the city of Chicago for a while.
0: So you've got a lot of family recipes in this book. And these are really authentic family recipes, recipes that your grandmother passed down to you, uh, dishes that were family favorites. Which one is your favorite? And what would you recommend I try making first?
1: Meatballs. Meatballs. Meatballs and the baked Those, those are the two that when people try them and they do them correctly, they will always say it's great. Um, You know, the, the ingredients today are different than the ingredients that we had back then. You know, the cheeses are not rendered the same. The meats are not raised the same. There's, you know, GMOs and things. So there is a difference in the taste, that I can remember as a child, but it, it's pretty close and it's pretty unique. And, you know, that was difficult for me to do because when I was taught those recipes, you know, you put your fingers in the salt and you put a pinch in. Well, how do, how do, you, you, know, how do you put that in a cookbook as a measurement? But yeah. I think I managed to do it.
0: I'd like to ask you what you think the legacy of the Capone family is in 2016 both personally and across the world?
1: I think it's becoming more that they were shrewd business people. I get my business acumen from the Capone genes, and I am really a good businesswoman. I've started businesses. I've sold businesses. I mean, you know, just to do what I am doing with a screenplay and a book, just to write a book and have it be the second printing, no, the third printing is almost exhausted. So, and then to turn it into a movie, you know, that takes planning, it takes strategy, and it takes perseverance and persistence. And I do have that, and that, that all comes from the Capone family.
0: So where can people go to get your book and learn more about you?
1: I don't know really what I'm doing, but social media, of course. So I do as much as I can on social media. I'm on Facebook. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Google+. Um, I have a blog on my website. My website is unclealcapone.com. They can purchase an autographed copy of my book through PayPal or use any credit card very safely on my website And also my book is available at at booksellers all over the place. Amazon, Google, Google Books, it's out there. So it's very easy for them to get.
0: Thank you so much for your time today.
1: You're very welcome, Eric.
0: As we've learned time and time again, the history we've been led to believe is true isn't always so. One of the most notorious Midwest bank-robbing gangsters of the 1930s, Ma Barker, wasn't the violent, tommy-gun-toting gang matriarch she was made out to be by J. Edgar Hoover. In reality, she was a docile old lady who sat at home and listened to hillbilly music on the radio while her boys went out and robbed and killed. But she had nothing to do with it. After G-Men gunned her down in a Florida standoff by accident, uh, along with her son Freddie, That was no accident. Hoover created the myth of Ma Barker to cover up the fact that they'd killed an unarmed old woman. And all I'm saying is that history can be malleable based on your personal motives or those writing the history, and so it goes with Al Capone. Whatever your beliefs on his guilt or innocence, there were people in the 1930s, people with influence, newspapers, government officials, Chicago businessmen, and rival gangland leaders who had it out for him. No question. And I don't believe it's some giant leap in logic to assume that some of the charges hurled against Capone, like responsibility for the St. Valentine's Day massacre, might have been trumped up to fill an agenda. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobweb corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis. Keep an open mind. Remember that the old saying that history is written by the victors is usually true. And have a safe tomorrow.